Satan became a Christian about seven years ago at Yale. You heard that right. Satan became a Christian about seven years ago at Yale. As a high school student, Jane called herself Satan. She was so anti-God that every single test, every single homework assignment, everything she turned in, she signed Satan. Her classmates called her Satan. Even her teachers called her Satan. There was nothing that gave Jane more pleasure than debating with one of her Christian classmates. And she was very good at it. After all, she was accepted into Yale as a senior in high school. And as a freshman at Yale, she quickly developed a reputation for anti-God debate. But partway through her first semester at Yale, a long-time relationship fell apart. And as she was walking across campus, she saw a poster that said, God and Relationships. And it piqued her interest, even though it was sponsored by crew at Yale. And so she showed up. And what she expected when she showed up is that she would be recognized, and she was, and that that people would know that she was very anti-God, and they did. But then she expected that she would receive hostility. But instead, she experienced love. She thought she would get weakness because every other Christian she'd met was weak. And she didn't. Instead, people listened to her questions. And one of the students invited her to read through the book of John. Well, Jane sat down that night, and over the weekend, she read through the entire book of John. And it was so interesting. It captured her attention so much that she just kept right on reading. Throughout that semester, she continued to read the Bible that she had been given. She continued to show up at crew meetings, continued to be accepted and loved. And she began to change. In fact, she changed so much that even her friends, her non-Christian friends, recognized it. One of her friends, one of her best friends, right before the winter break, confronted her about this change and said, Jane, I want the old Jane back. And then she threw Jane's Bible in her face and said, you're becoming a Christian. Over that break, Jane had to admit that that was true. She believed in God more than she disbelieved. She believed the Bible more than she disbelieved it. And she trusted Jesus more than she didn't trust him. Are you like me? When you look at somebody like Jane, do you say there is no way on this good earth that that person will accept Jesus? It is not worth my time and effort to talk to them. I find that I am easily convinced about the readiness of people to accept Christ. And unfortunately, the way that I am most readily convinced is to believe that they're not interested and unreachable. And yet today, as we look in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, we're going to look at a couple of questions. Can God change the great and the powerful? Can he change people like Jane? And even sometimes more important, can God change the great and the powerful person I know the best? Can he change me? So we're looking at Acts chapter 8. If you have a Bible, flip to it. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Last week, we saw that the early church is beginning to face intense persecution for the first time in their history. 
The persecution is so bad in Jerusalem that the believers are starting to scatter throughout Judea and even into Samaria. But wherever they go, they tell people about Jesus. Let's read the entire section, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him for a long, because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and the great miracles that Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things that you said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Undoubtedly, as the believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, there are probably lots of places that Luke, the author of Acts, could have focused in on. Why does he focus in on this story in Samaria? Well, I think there are three reasons. The first is that the great gospel transforms Samaria and transforms the people I know. The second is the great gospel transforms Simon and can transform me. And finally, the great gospel transforms the world. We're going to look at each of these in turn. So the great gospel transforms Samaria and the people I know. Just as a reminder, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I think if I had been a Jewish believer listening to Jesus say that, there is one thing that would have caught my attention. I know that God is for the Jews, Judea and Jerusalem, and I know that God wants to conquer the world. 
But I would have been stuck on this word Samaria. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans were, let's say, hostile to each other. The, the Samaritans were half Jewish, relationally, uh, half Jewish religiously and half Jewish um, uh, culturally as well, or racially as well. They were descended from the intermarriage of Jews and foreign nationals that the Assyrians had brought in after they conquered the northern kingdom. And these half-Jews were hanging out in Samaria when they were attacked by a bunch of lions and they realized that they probably ought to worship the God of the land. And so what they did is they brought in a, a Jewish priest and they added Judaism to the rest of the gods that they served. And so the Jews in the southern kingdom looked down on these Samaritans as just half-Jews. They're not worth our time. And yet, Philip shows up in Samaria, and he begins to preach the gospel there, and the people want to hear his message. They listen to him for two reasons. One is because they actually wanted to hear the message itself. Secondly, they saw the effects of his message in the miracles that were performed. They saw people being healed, and they saw the evil spirits were being cast out. Now, in the U.S., we hear evil spirits being cast out, and that kind of throws us for a bit of a loop where we kind of pass over it because we don't really have categories for that. In the U.S., we've convinced ourselves that what is real is what I see. But Jesus talks about evil spirits, and he talks about an unseen reality that we cannot see and yet is very real and has an impact in our lives. And we see that here. Do we need to be worried about it? No, because passages like this and passages throughout the Gospels talk about Jesus having power over the unseen world. Do we need to be concerned? No, because we have Jesus. But we do need to recognize that it's there. So of all people, the Jews would have looked at the Samaritans and said they are the least likely to accept Jesus, the least likely to want to hear this message, and the least likely to want to listen to us as Jewish believers. You know, when I look around the world, perhaps the people that I consider to be the least likely to want to hear about Jesus are probably Muslims in the Middle East. Behind me, there should be a picture of two circles. Have you guys seen these circles before? If you've been involved with crew, you probably have. These circles are from the Four Spiritual Laws, which is a four-point outline of the essence of the gospel that we use frequently in crew. And these circles come at the precise point in the gospel presentation where a person needs to make a decision. Am I going to follow Jesus? Or actually, am I going to stay with Jesus outside my life and not listen to him? Or am I going to follow him and I'm going to submit to him? Well, our crew staff, when they go through the four laws in the Middle East, it is not uncommon for these circles to generate a response. And I have heard, not unfrequently, of Muslims seeing these circles for the first time, saying, wait a second, I've seen these before. And when the crew staff asks them about it, they say, yeah, last night, I had a dream, and a shining man explained to me in the dream. He showed me these circles, and he said that someone would explain what they mean. What do they mean? 
God in the Middle East, where I, in my little faith, do not expect him to do anything, is leading people, putting them in a position where they have to make a decision, and he's setting them up for it. And then he's bringing people into their lives that can explain the gospel and bring, help them to see that they need to make a decision. And people are coming to Jesus in the Middle East. They're doing that now, even though I don't expect it. What people groups or what people types do you have trouble believing that God can transform? Those people don't have to be overseas. They could be as close as your dad's side of the family. Or it could be as close as the people who live down at the other end of the street who you just don't know. Maybe they're the people you commute with on the bus or on the train. Or it could be your co-workers. God scattered Philip into Samaria so that Samaritans would come to know Jesus. God scatters crew staff and other missionaries into the Middle East so people in the Middle East can come to know Jesus. And God scatters you into your family, onto your street, into your workplace, so people can come to know Jesus. You may even be thinking of those people now. And while Philip experienced the hard work of crossing the barriers of being Jewish, going into Samaria, he also experienced the joy of seeing people transformed. When you go to those people that you're thinking of, it's hard work. It's hard work talking about Jesus, inviting people into relationship with him. It's hard work getting to know people that personally. And yet, you can experience the joy of seeing people transformed. You know, as hard as it is to believe that God can transform those people, it can be even more difficult to believe that God can transform me or specific people like Simon or Jane. But the great gospel can transform Simon and it can transform me. In Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, we read this. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with their magic. Catch the description of Simon here. Simon desires above all things to be great, to be known. To have people pat him on the back and say, you are a great guy. He claims to be great. And when the people around him say, you are great. In fact, you're so great. You're the power of God. He doesn't stop it. He soaks it in like a sponge. In a large sense, he's claiming to be God. Who is the real power of God? It's the Holy Spirit. And yet Simon is seeking Such a claim that he's taking that name onto himself. Of all the people in Samaria, Simon was probably the most unlikely to become a follower of Jesus. He had the most to lose. But even Simon begins to follow Jesus because of Philip's message and actions. 
And the word gets back to the, uh, to the, the apostles in Jerusalem about the transformation that's going on in Samaria. And they have to come check things out. I mean, undoubtedly, they probably remembered traveling through Samaria when Jesus had to go through Samaria to see the woman at the well and a whole town came to know Jesus. Undoubtedly, John probably remembers the time that he and James, they were going through Samaria with Jesus on their way to Jesus being crucified and there was a Samaritan village that wouldn't accept Jesus into its midst. And so James and John had a good solution for this. How about we just smoke them? Call down fire from heaven and burn them up. And Jesus rebuked them. And they saw again Jesus' care for the Samaritans. But even in spite of that, the transformation in Samaria would have been difficult to believe. And the apostles wanted to see it for themselves. As you read through that passage, you see again that Peter and John arrive and they lay their hands on the new believers and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is kind of strange because the normal pattern is that when we become a Christian, immediately we receive the Holy Spirit. And we see this in Romans 8 verse 9. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And... Remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. If you don't have the spirit, you aren't a Christian. That's what this verse is saying. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you have the spirit. That is the typical, the normal way of receiving the Holy Spirit. But why didn't the Samaritan believers receive the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came? Well, as you read through the book of Acts, you will find that there are five times when the Spirit comes separate from a person receiving Jesus. The first three that I'll mention are in Acts chapter 2, 8, and 10. And you can read those later on your own. But all of those are the first time that the gospel comes into a new people group. It's Acts 2 is when it goes to the Jews for the first time. Acts, 4, or Acts 8 here is when it goes to the Samaritans for the first time. And Acts 10 is when it goes into the Gentiles for the first time. What needs to happen in each of these cases is the first time the Jews need to see that God's power actually exists and can live in them. After that, they need to see that that same power goes into the Samaritans and goes into the Gentiles, that those people groups can be believers just like them. There's not some subclass. They needed to see that the Holy Spirit was poured out on these groups, and when that happens, the Jewish believers are more ready to accept them into their community. In Acts chapter 4 is another time, and here, this is the first time the believers prayed for power after experiencing persecution. They needed to see that God's power was available for such things. And so God pulls out his, pours out his power in a special way on them. And so now we know that God's power is available to us. And then finally, in Acts 19, there's a group of believers who, they follow Jesus, but they don't know the whole message. They don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. And so when Paul encounters them, he tells them about the Holy Spirit, lays hands on them, and they experience the Holy Spirit as well. 
and they realized that they had the Holy Spirit in them. They just didn't realize it until then. Um, So that's why the Spirit is poured out in a different way this time. But for us today, the Spirit comes at the same time as we accept Jesus. Some of us need to learn more about that, but that's an entirely different message. Um, At any rate, Simon sees this power pulled out, and he says, oh, thank you. And he says, my, that water is good. That's not what he says. He says, I've got to get in on this. I want that power. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy that power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. Simon doesn't realize it, but he's just exposed his sin. He's exposed the sinfulness that's welling up in his heart. His desire for power and acclaim is bubbling to the surface again. Even though he believes in Jesus, there are still areas of his life that need to change and grow to become more like Jesus. Peter, very graciously, points out Simon's sin. Imagine if you were Simon and Peter said this to you. May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Peter sees Simon's sinfulness and loves Simon so much that he wants to save him from the wrath of God and he very bluntly aims the scalpel right into Simon's heart and points out his sin. Now, I don't know about you, but if Peter had aimed those words at me, actually if he had been far more gentle with me, my first response when somebody points out sinfulness to me is to move into defensive mode. If I had been Simon, I would have said something like, no, you're wrong. I was just joking. Or I would have attacked Peter. Well, what about this, this, and this? What about these things that are going on in your life, Peter? How dare you talk to me like that? But that's not what Simon does. Simon hears Peter's words. He accepts them into his heart. And he doesn't respond defensively. Instead, he says, Pray to the Lord for me, Simon. Exclaim that these terrible things that you've said won't happen to me. He's not defensive. He doesn't attack Peter. He doesn't attack Peter's statement. Instead, he humbly asks for help. You see, what Peter is doing is he's setting aside, I mean, Simon is doing, he's setting aside his desire for power and acclaim. And he's saying, Peter, you are right. And I need help. Will you help me? Will you help me in the midst of my sinfulness? Sometimes, often, when we're faced with our sin, we have that choice too. And we can deny the sin, or we can say, well, I can handle this on my own. In Christian circles, we might say, I'll pray about it, and Jesus and I together will work on this. But I think Simon is demonstrating something more than that. Simon is demonstrating 
inviting other people into our sinfulness where we can experience God's love and grace through those people. You know, I can relate to Simon. It just so happens that I have the same struggles, desires for power and acclaim and, um, yeah, the same thing. Your sin might be different, but in my case, I can relate to it very well. Even though I've been a follower of Jesus for many years, my sinfulness, my desire for acclaim pops back up again, and it's been doing that again and again this semester. Five years ago, as, as Michael mentioned, I was brought into the role of overseeing all the finances for crew in New York and New England, and I love my job. I love what I do. And I was the first person to step into this role. And so every little thing that I did was greeted with a pat on the back and, thank you, Nate, we're so glad you're here. And that continues. That continues. But you know what's changed? My heart has changed. So that I'm realizing this spring I felt extremely unappreciated. People are still patting me on the back. But my attitude has changed in such a way that I think I deserve it. People owe me the compliments. Because I work hard and I do good things for them. And if I don't get complimented about certain things, then I feel hurt. What's up with that? Even worse is that I feel like God owes me because I work so hard in the ministry. Even as I was preparing this talk, this was coming back to light again in my life. And I'm still in the middle of it. I wish I could look here, look you all in the eye and say, God has changed my heart radically. Well, you know what? He hasn't. I still feel that same thing. So maybe me talking to you all is an invitation for you to enter into my sin and pray for me. Okay? (laughs) You know, like Simon, like me, we all have sin. We all need to grow in various ways. Sin is normal until we reach heaven. We all have to grow. I've told you where my sin is becoming apparent to me. Where is your sin becoming apparent to you? It may not be a desire for acclaim or power, but it could be something else. And like Simon, you and I face a choice when our sin bubbles to the surface again. How are we going to respond when our sin is pointed out to us? Are we going to move into defensive mode, try to deflect that away from us? Are we going to accept it instead? Are we going to attack the messenger? It's a little dangerous when it's God that's pointing out the sin, right? What might it look like for you to humbly accept the sin and ask for help? To respond humbly in the face of sin. So how will you respond when, how will I respond when my sin is pointed out to me? And who might I or you ask for help? Who will you ask to pray for you in the midst of your sin? Who will you ask to be your friend, to stand beside you in the midst of your sin and love you for who you are? You want to see change? That's what it takes. 
And that's how Jesus has set it up. So, so far we've seen that the great gospel transforms the people I know, even those I don't expect. And the great gospel transforms me, just like it transforms Simon. Here at the end, we see that the great gospel transforms the world. We see this in Acts chapter 8, verse 25. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Peter and John have just been in Samaria. They've seen the transformation there. Now it's time to go home, and as they head home, they can't help but talk about Jesus. They've seen the joy again of new believers coming to know Jesus, and they have to talk about it. So far, in Acts, the great gospel is spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, just as Jesus promised. And now, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it's going to go to the ends of the earth. In a real sense, we are living in the last chapters of Acts. The gospel continues to go out to the ends of the earth. Continues to go out. And we get to be a part of that. Um, Each year, crew has an evangelism training conference on the beaches of Panama City Beach over spring break. This conference, there might be a okay, this conference is my favorite and least favorite conference all at the same time. I am a conflicted person. There was a time when I went 14 years in a row out of 15 possible years. It's my least favorite conference because talking on the beach to college students who are there to party can be scary. It can be scary for a couple of reasons. One is because I think people won't be interested in Jesus. It could be, it's also scary because I'm afraid that I won't know what to say. When I go out sharing on the beach with a freshman guy who's never been on the beach before, I need to pause before we get on the beach and I need to say, Jesus, pray for both of us. Jesus, help us to be bold. Help me to be bold again. So it's my least favorite because it's scary. But it's my most favorite because this evangelism training conference conference addresses both of those needs. There's a little training in what to say, and there's a lot of practice in actually talking to people about Jesus and seeing that even over spring break, people are interested in Jesus. Freshmen walking out on the beach with me think that they'll be picked up by the Alabama football players and thrown into the water, and they're not. Instead, they invite, the football player invites them to share the gospel. And we see people come to Jesus every year. What does this do in the lives of our students that we take down? Well, it helps them to see that people are interested, and it helps them to know that they know what to say. So when they get back on campus, there is a radical explosion of evangelism on campus. It's not unusual for me to hear stories of freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors involved with crew who come back on their campus and have their roommate say, I went to wherever over spring break. What did you do? And these crew students whip out their little four-point outline of the gospel known as the four spiritual laws, and they say, I was on the beach at Panama City Beach, and I went through this booklet with people. Would you like to see it? And their roommate prays to receive Jesus. 
They come back excited to talk about their roommates, their professors, and their families about Jesus because they've seen that people are interested and they know what to say. The gospel continues to spread today, and you're seeing this as well as you talk with people. Kim somewhere heard something called the compassion cycle, which I just wanted to share with you a little bit. The compassion cycle, as I connect with people where they really are, I grow in care for them because I see their needs. And as I grow in care for them, seeing their needs, I am moved to compassion to meet those needs. And so I act to meet their needs. And as I act to meet their needs, I connect with them further. And more needs are revealed. And so I care. And so I compassion. And so I connect. And that circle gets started. My question to you is, how can you get, how can I get a little bit of training in sharing the gospel so with those around me so I know what to say and I'm not thrown off when somebody asks me a question? And how can I initiate the compassion cycle with people? How can I connect with a person and express care to them so I am moved to compassion and connect further? That will always lead to sharing the gospel. How can I practice sharing the great gospel with those around me so that I see people are interested in Jesus? You remember those people you thought of earlier that don't, you think are impossible for them to come to know Jesus? How can you activate the compassion cycle in them, with them? How can you connect and care for them? So today we've seen that the great gospel transforms the great world and the great me. This morning we've seen that it transforms, the great gospel transforms Samaria and the people I know. We've seen that it transforms Simon and even me. And we've seen that the great gospel continues to transform the world. The great gospel does this even when I don't believe that it will. You know, this morning I've asked many questions. You've probably written a few of them down, or maybe one of them is sticking in your mind. I'd encourage you to pick out just one, just one of those questions, and act on it sometime this week. You remember Satan, Jane? She became a Christian at Yale. Jesus so radically transformed her life, even when the Christians around her, her friends, and she herself didn't think that was possible. Now she's on staff with crew. And she is having a ministry to students who are entering college as freshmen with the same baggage that she carried in as a freshman. Jane is convinced that the great gospel can transform lives because she's experienced Jesus transforming her own life. Just as Jesus transforms Samaria, Simon, and the world, he can and will transform your life and the lives of those around you through his great gospel, even when you don't think that that's possible. 